so this is this is just straight up stoic realism seeing things for how they are not for how you wish they were not for how you're fantasizing they might be or could be if other things were different other things beyond your control went your way right so seeing things as they are the world is going to do what the world does the things that are not up to you are going to roll along and unfold the way they do. Welcome to Stoa Conversations. In this conversation, I speak with William O. Stevens about the six core themes of Stoicism. Before hopping into that, I should say that we are kicking off our live virtual course next week. So visit stoameditation.com slash course and sign up. It'll be an excellent way to kick off the year. So both Michael and I are very excited to do it. The key focus of the course is applying stoicism to daily living for a more calm, resilient, and ultimately virtuous life. If you're the kind of person who enjoys this podcast, you'll get a lot of value out of it. So check it out at stoameditation.com slash course. And here is our conversation. Welcome to Stoa Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros, and today I am speaking with William O. Stevens. I've chatted with William a number of times before. We have episode 26 on Epictetus's handbook, and most recently episode 94 on Musonius Rufus, and that's on his discussions of food um, and nature. Uh, today, we're going to be focusing on the six core themes of Stoicism. These are the themes that are covered in William's most recent book, Epictetus's Enchiridion, and that's with Professor Scott Aiken as well. Well, thanks again for uh, joining. Always good to have you on. Happy to be with you, Caleb. So, well, I suppose we'll start here. Yeah. What was the process for thinking through what the six core themes of Stoicism you decided to, to present on with, with Scott Aiken? With Scott, yeah. Well, we, we were discussing how we wanted to introduce the, the core of the book, which is the new translation, which is not very many pages, of course. And then our detailed commentary, which is really the, the bulk of the book and the heart of the book. But we wanted to set the stage. And so we tried to figure out the best way to do that with the kind of uh, several introductory parts of the book, setting the stage with uh, the history and the impact and influence and the reception of the handbook. Uh, was one chapter that we wanted to make sure to have. But introducing Stoicism more broadly, um, we thought it would be handy to isolate what we saw as six central themes, six core themes of Epictetus's brand of Stoicism, his brand of Roman Stoicism, and of course, as an instance of Stoicism in general, uh, for our readers. And so this, this guidebook, this guide that we've created is for both the instructors and their students to help them navigate their way through 
uh, really one of the most influential Stoic texts in the history of Western philosophy, namely Epictetus and Zancaridian. So these are the six core themes that we've chose to package that kind of first encounter with Epictetus in. Excellent. Nice. Well, so our first theme then is this idea of self-control. And I think it's one that'll be familiar to many listeners who are interested in Stoicism, maybe consider themselves to practitioners uh, as well. There's always that idea, you know, would you have a great empire rule over yourself? This sort of line that runs through Stoicism and also several of the other ancient Greek philosophies. How would you describe, what's your spin on, you know, self-control in Stoicism? Yes, very good. It, 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 yeah, so this is the one we picked first. And I think part of the motivation for beginning with this one is to contrast a very common popular notion in our culture of self-indulgence with self-control. And the, the quotation that, that you just shared is spot on, right? If you want to control your world, you got to begin with yourself. Right. And beginning with yourself and learning stoicism, what you learn very quickly, if you have it already, is that you don't really control your world. You try to manage your world the best you can. But when it comes to control, you really just have yourself. You have what's between your ears, right? What's going on between your ears? And when people are outward looking as they, I don't know, naturally are, I suppose, commonly are, certainly in our culture. They look for the answer to the problems to come from outside them, right? My coworkers are mistreating me. My boss doesn't appreciate me, won't give me a raise, right? Driving mm -hmm. down the highway, I've got all these other obstacles in cars. Other motorists are problems for me. They're slowing me down. They're getting in my way. They're endangering me. Whatever it is, family, friends, strangers, coworkers. Other people are seen as impediments to getting things done, getting what you want, right? But the focus of self-control is that happiness is a state of mind. It's a state of character for, for Epictetus and the Stoics. And so the very notion of thinking that happiness derives from things external to you is a confusion. It's a confusion, right? If happiness is a state of mind, then you have to have your mind in the right way in order to experience a smooth flow of life, in order to have a kind of tranquility, a kind of equanimity. These are the goals for the Stoic, and that's to be achieved through self-control. And so you've got to get a grip on your desires and your beliefs. And if you get a grip on your desires and your beliefs, and you focus your energies on getting those in order, proper mental hygiene, as it were, mm -hmm. then you will have informed judgments and informed valuations of the events that occur to you. And if you practice this diligently day in and day out, week in and week out, month after month, year after year, you can make progress toward achieving greater happiness and not be thwarted in your desires, not be frustrated in your expectations. All of this follows upon 
self-control. So desires have to be things that you understand as mental activities that are up to you, to use Epictetus's phrase, right? You have to control your desires. If you have bad desires, just to put it very bluntly, if you have dangerous desires or even the wrong desires, then you're going to pay a price. The consequences of having poorly informed desires, bad beliefs, unsupported beliefs, is going to be frustration, fear, anger, disappointment, envy. These are the negative emotions that are going to come from a lack of self-control. So this is the first theme that we, we try to articulate in, in that section of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think on one level, many people, even many non-Stoics will agree that, of course, happiness isn't just a matter of externals. And yet it does seem like so much of our ordinary life is maybe is engineered around consumption or even simple conversations about how was your day? We refer to events in the day, things that happened to us rather than, you know, my day went well because I made excellent decisions and judgments in a proper, exactly. proper style or something like that. Sort. I reacted admirably to the events that occurred that happened to me today, right? Focusing on our reactions, right? And our evaluations yeah. of them. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and that I suppose that ties into nicely the second theme, seeing things as they are, which is a goal to sort of orient oneself. What what should control? There's always that question: What are you controlling for the sake of? What's the purpose? And if you're thinking about your judgments, well, the purpose of your judgments: see things as they are, pursue knowledge. Yes, exactly. To, to that more. Exactly. So this is this is just straight up stoic realism. Seeing things for how they are, not for how you wish they were, not for how you're fantasizing they might be or could be if other things were different, other things beyond your control went your way, right? So seeing things as they are, the world is going to do what the world does. The things that are not up to you are going to roll along and unfold the way they do. And Stoics recognize that while self-control is up to you, the other things up to you that we've mentioned, belief, judgment, evaluation, these things have to be in accord with, they have to harmonize with the facts of the world. And those facts include our human limitations. And again, in our culture, we recoil against this, right? People, some, many people think it's, it's positively rude to talk about death that this makes people very uncomfortable and they squirm and they think it's, it's, it's discourteous somehow or gauche to talk about people, you know, at any length of time, uh, dealing with illness or infirmity or disability or mortality. And Stoics recognize that these things are real. They're not going to go away. And so Stoicism is a reaction to the ostrich sticking its head in the sand, right? Actually, as I understand it, and I might be wrong here, but don't ostriches do that because they want to hear predators galloping up on them or something? Do they listen? I don't know. I don't know how much ostriches actually stick their head in the sand. You take my right. point, right? 
Reality is not going to go away just because you close your eyes and cover your ears. And so starting with that firm, grisp, firm grasp of um, seeing things as they truly are allows you to recognize how to make your reactions and your choices congruent with the realities that we cannot change. And so Stoics embrace those realities. They embrace them, right? And instead of thinking of death and limitation as some sort of horrible doom scenario, recognizing that we're not gods means that we can appreciate moments in our lives even more as even more precious because they are fleeting, right? When you have a tender moment with, with your child or you share an affectionate, you know, uh, uh, intimate kiss or, 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 or moment with your spouse or partner or an expression of love with one of your parents that's reciprocated or a pat on the back from one of your friends, or you're giving your friend a pat on the back because you're, you're, you're like spirits, right? I mean, these, these moments of human connection are, are special because you ought not to take them for granted because not everyone does enjoy them every day. And, and they're not going to last forever, which means that you appreciate them. You appreciate them all the more. So this is a common misconception about Stoics, that they don't smell the roses. Good grief. You better believe that the Stoics smell the roses, right? Because they know that the bloom comes off the rose in time, that roses lose their petals. It's December now, right? And so in many parts, you and I are in, uh, you're in California and I'm here in Arizona, so our weather is not all that cold and frosty, probably, right? But in, in much of North America, they're having snow and cold weather and, and the green plants have turned to brown. And so th this is the seasonal change. Change is, change is the constant, right? The Stoics very much follow Heraclitus on that front, right? The only thing that doesn't change is that there's always change. And so adapting to these changes is, again, part of seeing things as they are and recognizing that your human flourishing is certainly possible despite these changes beyond our control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Another aspect of the world is nature and recognizing that you know, there's a nature to things. And this third theme you have is living according to nature. How do you think about that phrase in Stoicism? What's the, what role does it play? <laughs> It's a very rich concept. It's a very rich concept, right? So you have multiple layers when it comes to the meaning of nature for the Stoics. At the broadest scope, the broadest context is the universe, nature with a capital N. The universe, the cosmos as a whole. And the Stoics, of course, like most ancient philosophers, believe that cosmos, right, the world order, is an orderly thing. It's not just random events. There is a rhyme and a reason to it. And discerning that, of course, is going to be part of seeing things as they are. So living according to nature in the widest sense means living according to the, what, what some call the laws of nature, right? You can't fight gravity. Uh, and so the things that occur in the world 
you have to accept everything that occurs in the world. You have to accept spring, summer, fall, and winter day and night. There's also plenty when you've got plenty of food and there are famines, right? There's okay. health and wellness, and there's also diseases and sickness. All of these things are going to happen in the world. There's economic boom times and downturns and busts, right? So living according to nature means accepting the things that happen in the world and then responding accordingly to them. Okay. So how do you respond accordingly to, accordingly to them? The next layer of nature is our nature as the kind of animals that we are. As animals, we share a lot in common with fellow mammals, right? All animals and all mammals have to eat. They have to drink. They have to sleep. And it's according to nature to have impulses to procreate and reproduce, right? So recognizing that these sorts of human appetites, these sorts of human desires are natural is what's going on at this level. So it's not up to you never to get hungry. That's beyond your control. It's not up to you never to need a nap, never to need to sleep, right? Be careful not to dehydrate yourself. Make sure to drink water and the right sort of beverages, right? So taking care of these animal needs, this is nature at the next level. At the third level, you've got our specific human nature as a certain kind of primate. So we are very social animals. We are linguistic animals. We are political animals, right? As human beings. And so living in agreement with nature or living according to nature as humans means living in accordance with our specific human endowment, our gift from nature, our constitution. And for the Stoics, this is principally going to be our cognition, our intelligence, our higher mental faculties, our faculty of reason. So living in agreement with nature means living in agreement with our human reason. And this is transformative for the Stoics, right? Given their account of oikiosis, uh, this notion of affinity or appropriation, depending on how we want to translate it. When we mature into young adulthood, this actualization of our mere potential to be rational occurs. And this transforms our world because we identify ourselves not so much with our bodies, not primarily with our bodies and our bodily needs as infants and children do, but with our minds, with our intelligence, with our cognitive needs and our cognitive powers. So this is extremely important to recognize living in agreement with reason as a special case of living in agreement with nature. Mm-hmm. And then with Epictetus, yeah. we even have this fourth layer of living in agreement with our own individual talents and abilities as individual human beings, as persons, right? And so living in agreement with my nature as Stevens might differ from you living in agreement with your nature as Caleb, right? Why? Well, because we have a lot in common, but you have talents that I may lack. I might have some skills and abilities and tendencies, which you may like. And so Epictetus speaks to this in the handbook when he says, oh, you want to be an Olympic athlete? Great. And you want to be what? You want to be a wrestler? Okay. Well, what should you do then? 
see things as they are and look at your, look at your hips, look at your waist, look at your body. Do you have the body that you could productively train to become an excellent wrestler? If you're tall and lean and you have long legs and arms, but you're very thin, this is not going to be the sport for you. This won't be the profession to pick, right? Because it's not your nature to get down there with broad shoulders and broad hips and strong arms, right? And wrestle with people, right? Maybe you should look into becoming a runner with long legs, right? And a very lean build. So, so this is the sort of thing that he has in mind when he talks about living agreement with our individual nature. And Cicero speaks to this with the four personae theory, but Epictetus has right, right. A, an even more robust theory of roles, which mm -hmm. is, oh, that's our fourth core theme, isn't it? Yeah, that's it? our fourth one. Yes, that's, a, that's excellent. Well, I, I should remark on how, just how much I, I love this fractal nature of Stoic philosophy, where you have the, at the largest scale, you have those aspects of reason, order, and then also the idea of providence or the telos, two things. And I think those two handles of thinking about how things are ordered, thinking about their telos, that, that, that aspect of value and thinking about how those matter for the different levels of, the, of our nature. So for example, at the largest scale, of course, for the traditional Stoics, you have order, providence. But once you zoom into, say, that human nature, you have our uh, reason is how rationality is manifest, but we're also social animals. And you can sort of see uh, how the idea of telos and providence plays out at, at that level as well. And then, of course, once you get into our individual natures, that's where the question of roles comes into play. And of course, our pro-social nature and our ability to reason, think clearly, see things as they are, is going to manifest themselves in different ways given given the details of who we are our lives where we happen to live in who we're surrounded with and so on yes yeah excellent well let's jump into roles then what's uh that's the fourth theme our virtue depends on our duties which are defined by our roles yes so here the idea is you have to know what your roles are and then knowing what they are, you need to do the duties that flow from them, that attach to those roles. And, and at a glance, you might think, oh, well, everybody knows who the roles are. Really? Really? I'm, I'm not so sure. I myself often lose sight of one role or another because I've been grossed in, in one, one, one matter or another. So if you, if you live in proximity to others, if you live in an apartment building or a condominium complex and there isn't really wonderful sound abatement between the walls or in the hallways or even outside, you're reminded that one role you have is that of a neighbor. You live close to other people. And so knowing your role here involves partly recognizing that when you have this shared space, you need to be mindful of your duty to observe quiet hours and be considerate of your close neighbors, right? You're, you're not an island. You're not living in isolation. Uh, most people don't live, you know, outside of urban centers, way, way, way out 
in, in rural areas. Some few do, but the vast majority of people, and increasingly demographically, right? This is, this is a trend that's been going on for decades. The vast majority of people live in very large urban centers that sprawl. And so knowing your role as a neighbor, as a citizen, this is vital in order to live as a good citizen and behave as you ought to and behave as a good neighbor and sharing things with your neighbors appropriately, right? But there's so many other roles, right? Involving work and recreation and travel, right? If you hop on a subway train, you immediately assume the role of a traveler, of a train traveler. And again, you're sharing a small space in this train car with other travelers, and you need to be mindful of their needs and, and how you should be considerate in interacting with them and even exercising the opportunity to chat up a stranger so that you don't feel socially isolated, right? Whereas we see all the time in big cities, people have their their sound canceling headphones on. Well, that's understandable because they want to protect their ears and they're they're doing their own thing and that's fine. But but that shouldn't rule out taking advantage of the opportunity to chat up a stranger and recognize that this is what? A fellow human being and a fellow traveler and maybe a fellow worker and maybe a fellow parent or sibling or child, right? so that we can battle this kind of social isolation that's become such a problem in the United States in recent times, especially during COVID and post-COVID. Um, but we also have professional roles that we have with fiduciary responsibilities, right? Are you, are you a patient or a healthcare giver, right? Are you a client or a care provider, right? So we've got, we've got myriad roles, there are dozens of them. Some only last for minutes. Some last for hours, some last for weeks. But of course, many roles that we have also last for a lifetime or at least for decades. And so figuring out which roles we can voluntarily pick up because they're going to promote our lives and help us achieve good things, acting in other virtues, using the talents that we have, deciding which roles to undertake and for how long before setting them aside either for a time or perhaps permanently, right? And then of course, so we've got the natural roles and we've got the acquired roles. You're born as a human being, that's permanent until you die, right? You're born as a son or a daughter. You're born as a sibling, perhaps. You don't choose any of those roles that you're born into in terms of your genetic inheritance, right? But which friends you choose to have, those are chosen roles that you have. Which career, which profession, which job to have and pursue, that's going, those are going to be chosen roles. And so our duties are going to flow from these. And for Epictetus, figuring out what your duties are, if you have squarely in mind what your roles are, isn't rocket science. He thinks that, you know, with this notion of, of uh, what, prolapses, these, these, these preconceived notions, it's sort of intuitive. That's the way we would put it, mm -hmm. right? It's intuitive what your duties are as a son or a friend or a boss, right? Looking over, you know, uh, employees, what you, if you're a supervisor, what duties do you have to look out for them, to make sure that your workplace is safe, 
and is healthy and people feel like they're, they're comfortable and you're empowering them to contribute to the company or to the organization or institution. If you're a teacher, if you're a student, knowing what your duties are, these you can figure out, especially if you've got a mentor to help you, which is another vital role. And of course, Epictetus's role that he chose to devote the vast majority of his time to was to be a teacher. Right. And teaching stoicism to others to improve their lives. How, so one question I have here is how, um, if we adopt this idea that adopting rule, our roles is generally intuitive, thinking about what our roles ought to be is generally intuitive, uh, so long as- The duties we, are intuitive. The, the duties come intuitively, largely. But the, once we, but yeah, so once you've adopted a role, then the duties come intuitively. But I guess there's this yeah. question when you're thinking at the level of adopting roles, there's a wide yes. variety of how these roles have been realized throughout history, which sorts of roles are seen as good ones. There are different social arrangements. So on the face of it, this seems like this gives stoicism some amount of flexibility, sensitivity to different cultures, different material circumstances, which has its advantages. But also there's this worry that, well, maybe there are some cultures where the general, you know, there are some serious problems in the roles of the society, right? And, you know, how do you think about that balancing what might be a kind of almost small C conservatism you sometimes see in the Stoics, you know, following these traditional roles, which has its advantages, has its wisdom in it, but also with the worry that perhaps, you know, we ought to really be thinking about structuring our social arrangements differently. How, how do you think about that? Excellent question. Just truly excellent question. Thank you. Yes. So vital to remember that the Stoics are committed to justice and they're committed to virtue, right? Wisdom, justice, courage, temperance, generosity, and piety as they understand it. All of these things are of the highest value and are never to be traded for mere preferred indifference like social status or wealth, popularity or fame or pleasure, right? All of those other preferred indifference are, are nothing, are trivial compared to the pursuit of virtue and maintaining and preserving virtue. And so a common misunderstanding of Stoicism is this kind of social apathy that Stoics are passive. They don't care about unjust institutions. They don't care about unjust social arrangements. They don't care about patriarchy, sexism, racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia. They don't care about any of those things except their own happiness. This is so wrong, right? Because the Stoic dedicates herself above all to living virtuously. And that means working to reform injustice on every front, on every front, working within systems that are imperfect to improve them. But also, if it's the case that an arrangement uh, an institution or system is irreparable, 
if it's incorrigible, then it has to be replaced. It has to be replaced. Justice demands it. And so as I see it, Stoics very much on the theoretical level and entirely on the practical level are committed to social justice, period, full stop. In their own society, between nation states, at the local level, at the state regional level, at the national level, and internationally. And so this includes environmental injustice. This includes battling global climate change. This includes speaking out against and working hard to abolish slavery in the world today, right? We, 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 don't, we don't think there are any slaves in the United States. And yet we, we have, in the news, you, you find child trafficking rings that are discovered, right? People who are abducted. And there's certainly slavery outside the United States going on too. Stoics are fundamentally opposed to injustice wherever it occurs. To have a laissez-faire attitude about injustice is to fail to be a Stoic. It's to, it's to, it's to not be dedicated to achieving virtue in oneself and doing everything you can to promote it in others. Yeah, absolutely. So certainly Stoics are committed to justice. And I guess there's always a question, well, what does that mean? And of course, uh, there are going to be discussion, debate, some justifiably complex, others perhaps not so justifiably seen as complex uh, about, uh, about what that amounts to. But I guess one of the, the key takeaways th that I would add is when you're thinking about these roles, yes, you have virtues that shouldn't be sacrificed, but you can also think of thinking of your roles as a hierarchy. And, sometimes, and if you think about fundamentally as a human being, you're going to be required to pursue knowledge and act in pro-social ways. And if you find a role that violates that, that is very, uh, you know, that just shows that that is a social role that does not contain a virtue in it. I don't know if you have anything else to add to that. Yeah, I, I would just say not only would you have to jettison any role that conflicts with that cosmopolitan role of being a rational being in a large cosmopolis of other rational beings, recognizing them as your fellow citizens, which I think has to include a strong notion of egalitarianism when it comes to rights and respect and treatment of other people. But even choosing between roles that better promote the health and well-being and cooperation of the cosmopolis and those that less promote that cosmopolis, I think a Stoic would opt for the former, assuming that he or she has the talents and the abilities to do that more impactful role better, more mm -hmm. successfully, right? right Some right. people are going to have beautiful voices and choosing to be singers is going to be an entirely appropriate, th appropriate thing for them. But that doesn't rule out being active as a community organizer, right? Yeah, the cosmopolitanism definitely feeds into that notion of hierarchy when it comes to sorting through roles and, and helping adjudicate between some that might be in tension. And, and there will be roles that come into, come into tension with other roles. You can't, you, can't, you can't do everything all at once. You just can't. 
So you have to make hard decisions about prioritizing certain roles at certain times over others. And the faculty of reason and the promotion of virtue and justice can help that make those adjudications, I think. Right, right. Excellent. So now moving on to the fifth theme, having virtue depends on knowing, depends on knowledge. What's the upshot of, of this? Yeah, this is very important for the Stoics. Of course, historically, they're challenged by some of the smartest philosophers that have ever existed, not just in the ancient world, but in the history of Western thought. And those are the skeptics. And the skeptics really gave the ancient Stoics the what for. They challenged the Stoics to come up with better arguments, stronger arguments, uh, defensible doctrines um, in their philosophy. And the Stoics responded the best they could. So virtue depends on knowing a lot of things. It depends on knowing what your roles are, knowing your duties, knowing the different senses of nature so that you can live in accordance with it, knowing how things work, knowing science insofar as an ignorance of science would make your life miserable in the long run. So understanding Understanding science is crucial for living an informed life as a Stoic. And so virtue requires all of these kinds of knowledge, not just ethical knowledge, but knowledge of what the Stoics called physics, right? What we today would call metaphysics after Aristotle, how the world works, right? What, what human nature is, medicine, epidemiology. We all had to learn a little bit about epidemiology, didn't we? back in 2020 to survive the, the COVID pandemic. Um, and so um, Stoicism is about developing true and justified beliefs. And so it, it, you have to gain these beliefs. You have to be able to weigh evidence for and against claims, evaluate them using your empirical resources, using your own faculty of judgment, using your knowledge of logic um, to get stronger epistemically, right? To become a kind of epistemologist who isn't going to make hasty, bad decisions on the basis of incomplete knowledge and dangerous ignorance. Ignorance is going to stand in the way of becoming virtuous. And so the only way to overcome that ignorance is by replacing weak beliefs, unsupported beliefs, beliefs with little evidence or no evidence in support of them with better beliefs, truer beliefs. And this requires doing epistemology the right sort of way and responding very seriously to the challenges that the skeptics pose to Stoic physics, Stoic logic, and Stoic ethics. Right. Yeah. I suppose it's, it's, it's uh, an ex a, a way. It's not just this, but can be understood as an extension of seeing things as they are, where you have that all important. What does that mean? It has this important epistemic duty almost, but also has this uh, the centrality of knowledge isn't just a duty, but it's fundamentally, uh, I think, how virtue is realized for the Stoics. Right, you can't be courageous unless you know the difference between reckless actions and cowardly ones uh, and brave ones. To say that, in um, indeed, you know, it's 
it's knowledge that makes a difference between virtue and vice. Exactly. That's a fine example. To be courageous, you have to know what is to be feared and what is not to be feared, right? The bully is not to be feared. Unpopularity in school is not to be feared. What the Stoic would fear, in scare quotes, is not being true to yourself, betraying a friend. That's to be feared in the sense of being avoided at all costs, right? Mm -hmm. Lying, cheating, stealing, stabbing people in the back, right? Lacking authenticity. These are the things that the Stoic avoids at all costs because they're vicious. And they, they, they will guarantee misery, right? So, yeah, the, you, have to, you have to know when it comes to wisdom, right? What is wisdom? They define wisdom as knowledge of what is good, what is bad, and what's neither good nor bad. Virtue is good, vice is bad, and everything else is neither good nor bad. So if, if you're going to become wise, you have to have that knowledge, right? Courage is what's to be feared, what's not to be feared. Uh, and, and justice is what people deserve. Giving to people, distributing to people what they deserve. So all of these definitions of virtues involve a kind of knowing. And so that's why knowing is, is indispensable for, for Stoics. And, and the goal, of course, and then the other thing I have to say about this is that Stoics know that human beings are fallible. We do make mistakes. We are going to make mistakes. Nobody is perfect. But wanting perfection is not foolish. This is what gets us into the aspirationalism, which we're getting to next. But remember that the paradigm, the, the role model of all Stoics is the sage. The sage has only true beliefs. The sage only exercises good judgments. The sage has all of her values correct. All of her priorities are correct. And so there's some debate over the, whether the early Stoics thought that the sage was actually omniscient, knew all things. But it's certainly the case that the sage has rooted out from her set of beliefs all of those false beliefs that she can that are possible to root out, right? Get rid of false belief. This is the goal. And so even if it's not achievable for human beings, even if none of us can become sages, we can strive for this prescriptive ideal of sagehood. And we do that by getting rid of as many false beliefs as we can and increasing our knowledge along the way. And as we live and learn and we gain more knowledge, we approach gradually, a little bit at a time, this destination, this, this high bar of becoming a sage. Right. Yeah. I suppose this is this sixth theme, which is that stoicism is aspirational. Um, the sage is someone we aspire to become. It's a target, an ideal. Is it something we can ever reach or becoming a sage? Is that a feasible, feasible mission in your view? Yeah. Uh, we can't say let's, let's, let's remember our epistemic humility here. What can we know and what can't we know? Well, we don't know the future. And so, you know, if we're being very careful here from a stoic perspective, 
We can't say, oh, we know we'll never be a sage. Well, you can't know that. That would be a future state of affairs that's beyond your knowledge, right? So we can't know that we would become sages, but we also can't know that we won't ever become sages. What we do know is that if we don't try to make progress in our beliefs, with our judgments, with our disciplined therapies of self-scrutiny right. and reflection at the end of every day, reviewing what you did well and what you did poorly, the mistakes you made, the lessons you learned, right? If we don't put in the effort, we know that we won't make progress and we won't become sages. But if we do try, then over time, in the long run, we might come close. We might come close. And there's reason not to be pessimistic about that. So yeah, Stoicism is this kind of aspirationalist view or what some people call a kind of perfectionism, right? Aspirationalism. So whereas Kant taught that ought implies can, if you ought to do something, then that logically implies that you can do it. Stoics turn this around and look at it differently. They believe that ought implies inspire. If you ought to be a better person, if you ought to be more just and more wise, then you can aspire to be more just than you are right now. You can aspire to be more virtuous than you are right now. You can aspire to have greater wisdom. Set that as your goal and work toward it. And progress isn't quick and it's not easy, but over time it's possible. If you're dedicated, if you're patient, if you're fortunate and you have the support of others in your network, in your family circles, in your circle of friends and associates, you can get help along the way and you can make progress. And that is a worthy goal making progress. And it's fueled by the right kind of aspirations. So aspirations for the right thing are admirable and the Stoics commend aspiring to be a better person. And I really think that this, this makes Stoicism a noble philosophy. I find it to be ennobling for just this reason that instead of thinking of human beings and focusing on us as being fundamentally flawed. We know in the history of Christianity, we're taught that human beings originally sinned. And this is part of the human, this is human nature to be imperfect, to be broken, to be sinful. Stoics choose instead to see the glass as half full. Human beings are powerful or they can make themselves power, right? Nobody is born bristling with muscles. And yet bodybuilders, athletes, weightlifters go into the gym, they put in the time, they eat a good diet and week in and week out, they make progress toward building up their physiques. If we think about how much time some people devote to their physical health and their physical fitness and how how big in circumference their biceps and triceps are and how rock hard their abdomens are all the time and effort that many human beings pour into getting stronger, bitter, brawnier bodies. 
And then you compare that with how much time people spend being epistemically humble and careful and evaluating beliefs, right? We've got the time to do a lot more mental work and make progress on that front. And that's what Stoics urge us to do. More online good to benefit ourselves and everyone around us. If we enhance our own virtue, everyone around us benefits from us being a better person. And we live mm -hmm. happier lives too. Right, right. Yep. And then they're always urging us and themselves to, yes, aspire to be the sage and then act right now. You know, you have to assemble your life yourself, action by action. Marcus, yeah, Aurelius, Marcus Aurelius says. Outstanding. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's up to us every moment. Make the best of every moment. How can you turn it to good use? Right? This is the resourcefulness that the Stoics emphasize. We have this ability. And we can strengthen it. We can learn how to become more resource, more adaptive, right? And we need to be able to adapt these days more than ever. There are so many different threats and dangers. We have to be able to be light on our feet, roll with bunches, right? And adapt to overcome, to overcome these challenges, to surmount them. And it requires cooperation and diligence and perseverance, all of those virtues. And so, good grief, is there a better thing to aspire to? I don't know what it would be. Stoics are not opposed to beauty either, right? So let's make the world a more beautiful place. Let's pitch in and do that. Let's make it more just. Let's make it safer. Let's make it smarter, right? Yeah. This is good stuff. It's fun talking about Stoicism, <laughs> Caleb. Yeah, th I think that's, uh, that's an excellent spot to end. So thanks, thanks so much for it coming back on and is there anything else yeah, you'd like to add as we, we finish up? No, thank you for your time. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or rate our podcast if you haven't already on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Finally, do check out our live virtual course, Stoicism Applied. Find it on maven.com or by going to stoameditation.com slash course. If you're keen on applying the teachings of Stoicism to your life in order to live a more calm, resilient, and a virtuous one, and uh, you're also a fan of this podcast, there's a very high probability you'll get a lot of value from it. And both Michael and I enjoy meeting and interacting with our podcast listeners. So do check that out. Till next time.